network tribes are inherently aggressive and they're always looking for weakness. And, and um, once you, at least on the internal channels, you know, let political discussions run wild, you can't rein them back easily. You're going you're gonna to have lots of dissent and it's all going to go online. It's, you know, the inside outside of the company is pretty open now. So it has to be something that's done at the very get-go. I think you can, though, create a kind of a corporate culture in terms of civility. Um, and if that's reinforced from the get-go um, and becomes like one of the major elements of being inside that company, you can mitigate a lot of this. Uh, but once you start using you know, coded language and you start using the kind of pattern matching that's done outside to attack enemies, um, there's nothing good that can come out of it because it's anti, it's against from the get-go. By using it, you're, you're, you're opening yourself up for attack. And that goes left, right. doesn't really matter. It's just like, hey, they're using that word. Boom. That's, that's tough. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. On this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, and doers, and we talk about the future of business models, uh, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world we live. Today, we inaugurate a little bit of a new type of special episodes that we will release uh, from time to time with no particular schedule, uh, uh, introducing our audience to teams that are slightly less uh, focused on product and organization design, but that should uh, help our audience uh, shed light on phenomena that uh, influence such practices. Uh, we call these special episodes Beyond Frames. And for this special uh, first special episode of Series 5, I'm joined by my usual co-host Shruti from Jakarta. Ciao Shruti. Hi Simone, nice to be here. Hi John. Thank you so much. And Shruti, you already introduced a little bit uh, our, our guest that we have today. Uh, we are happy to have a returning guest on the show uh, to talk about the topic of societal transformations and the network society. John Robb. Hello, John. It's great to have you here. Nice morning. Nice to be here. John is an American author, uh, entrepreneur, complexity expert, and military analyst is uh, mostly focused now to act as the owner and principal analyst uh, that produced the monthly uh, Global Guerrillas report, uh, which is available both on Substack and Patreon. You will see the link in the, in the description. And this report uh, monthly covers the intersection of uh, war, politics, and technology. Uh, John has been doing this work for decades and has provided people frameworks to uh, make sense of our relatively changing uh, and chaotic world. John is uh, one of our uh, go-to experts at Boundaryless when it comes to understanding the real implications of uh, how complexity is unfolding. And he was with us on episode four. Uh, it was April 2020, so we were trying to wrap our heads around the unfolding COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, in that episode, we explored how the power was shifting you know, towards uh, self-organizing, interconnected networks. And uh, the link to the show is going to be in the show notes today. As a first opener question, John, it would be fantastic to hear from you how your work has evolved in the last three years. I, I have this uh, guess that has become even more relevant. And uh, the pandemic was some sort of signal that we got in 2020. And words like war uh, at that time were uh, a bit more still unfamiliar to people and to the general audience. And now the idea of war has become a lunch table topic. So let's try to give um, an initial framing on how 
things have changed in the last three years. So, so maybe you can, you can uh, brief us a, a little bit on this. Right. Um, my work, for the most part, has focused on uh, new organizational structures, open source organizational structures, as they are applied to uh, insurgency movements, protest movements, now politics, um, now war. And they have a certain dynamic in terms of how they operate, certain limitations and certain strengths that uh, make them both difficult to handle and beneficial at times. And then the other focus I have is on how technology is rewiring us and at a mental level, our minds are being physically rewired and due to our interaction with new technologies. And that rewiring is going to cause changes in how we organize society and trying to figure out that. Last time that happened was back in, you know, when the printing press arrived. And Marshall McLuhan started pioneering that, but he died before the internet. Um, and then I've kind of picked up the ball on that. And finally, um, I have a focus on uh, work of John Boyd, America's you know, greatest uh, military strategist. His focus was on decision-making in warfare and, and, and everything else and how uh, decision-making can be improved to improve your performance. If you've ever heard of the OODA loop, O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide, act. Uh, that's John Boyd, but he also had more um, complex topics. Laying that as a groundwork, how has things changed? Well, <laughs> we've had a war. Open source dynamics, open source social dynamics have played a part in that. And the rewiring of our brains had played a part in that. We've seen a shift in how corporations are perceived and what we expect of them. The politicization of, 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 of corporate action, and that has built on you know, what, I've, what I've been looking at. Wasn't new, but we've seen the kind of same dynamics in, in, in politics as a whole. How we perceive institutions and their performance in this current environment has been influenced by these, these factors that I've been studying. So um, whichever one you want to focus on, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to drive, dive down into it. You uh, often um, refer to David Ronfeld uh, TIMN framework, you know, and uh, we spoke about this also last time we, we discussed. For those that are not familiar, TIMN means, you know, tribes, institutions, markets and networks and essentially the, the, the big point that uh, John is trying to explain or study or understand is this transition you know beyond markets into what we call the networks you not know, this networked society how do you advise organizations of all kinds to deal with this changing world in terms of both for example structures elements of culture or strategy, these are the three kind of things that I'm thinking about, strategy, culture, and structure, how the institutions that rely on you for, for advice, uh, for example, public institutions or, or private ones, I'm thinking of corporates mainly because this is the type of players that we most often talk to and work with and use our tools, especially corporates like small and big, how do they approach this, uh, you know, this new landscape from a perspective of structure, culture, and strategy. So maybe we can start with uh, culture and strategy, and then we move into structure. There's a, you know, a couple of things I would you know, focus on. First is the, you know, how your decision-making has changed in this new environment. This is a more complex environment than we've had in the past. Uh, we used to have a, you know, more of a complicated environment, meaning that there, we could engineer and plan our decisions. And it was really about scale in terms of marshalling the resources and the people and putting them into a structure, allowing us to achieve whatever ends we had in, in sight. In a complex environment, the off-the-shelf answers and, and solutions that we have to the problems that we face 
almost always never work. Okay, and uh, when you put them into implementation, you know, they'll fail before you actually finish the implementation. We saw that with COVID. We saw that with most recently with the war. We saw that uh, we see that on a, on a daily basis with many companies as they try to deal with the changing environment. In that kind of environment, uh, you have to be much more flexible. And one approach is to, if you're facing a problem or facing an opportunity, tap into your corporate brain trust and have them generate ideas. This is just one, one method of doing it. Have them generate ideas that you could, on terms of how to solve the problem. And then you select the, say, four or five best ones. And then you, the ones that have the most likelihood of, uh, of actually achieving positive results, and then you invest in them and let them run and see which one actually gains traction in, at the implementation stage. And that's the one you reinforce and go with. There are other kind of, you know, OODA loop, you know, John Boyd tricks that you could use in terms of improving your observation capability, uh, focusing on, 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 on improving your corporate culture and organizational culture such that it uh, provides, you know, a better orientation when you're faced with a, a, a dynamic, uh, complex environment. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when you observe something like an opportunity or a problem and you want to respond to it, the orientation or the cultural phase is the next thing because that puts the, the next phase of the decision-making process because that puts that problem into context. Um, it's based on everything, all the training, all the life experience and of, of the people involved, all of that goes into the orientation phase. And if you can get that right, uh, it'll help you a lot in terms of you know, responding in the right direction. Um, if you get the orientation wrong, you know, you're going to have a, a big problem because it's basically, if you think of the potential solutions as a, as a, as a wide open area in, in three dimensions that you can go a variety of different ways, getting the orientation wrong is like facing in the wrong direction, you know, away from the solution. And every step you take, and you, can, you can make quick steps and you can do it quickly, uh, will take you farther and farther and farther away from the uh, optimum solution. So getting that orientation phase right is, is important. And that allows you much more potential for success in a, in a, in a, in a dynamic environment. I think, John, the point that you were touching upon on how, let's say, the environment is changing, where I wanted to come in was to ask that network tribes, essentially, a large part of it operates in a decentralized manner. And the organizations that we have today in terms of corporate startups or larger organizations to some amount are following some amount of a hierarchical structure. So how do these two sort of operate in tandem with each other? And how do you suggest, let's say, corporates or organizations can go about this process of working with network tribes that might be more leaning towards decentralized ways of operation? Yeah, um, most of the network tribes that I've identified are mostly in the political space or the social space. Due to the dynamics of the way networks operate, these tribes aren't founded on a positive message, you know, what they want to achieve. If you ask, ask a network tribe what, ju what justice is, nobody could agree. <laughs> but what they can agree on is what they oppose. And that goes, you know, all across the, the traditional spectrum of left and right. They're great at being anti. And um, that's the thing that brings them together. Um, what they do is they build a pattern of behavior that they oppose. Uh, it's co-curated. There's millions of people potentially you know, on these bigger tribes um, that contribute to it. 
uh, they parse all the news or make sense of all the news and, and cubbyhole it and connect it to the, the pattern of behavior they oppose. So from a corporate organizational perspective, if you can, you, what you want it to do is, is find a way to uh, navigate beyond them or, or hold them off because um, they tend to be uh, very aggressive. Unfortunately, you know, the, I wrote a report on the Edelman uh, Public Relations Survey about corporate political orientation. And um, Edelman is the, uh, was the PR firm for Microsoft back in the day, back in the you know, uh, 80s and 90s. And uh, they're shark smart. They're really great um, in terms of what they do. And they found that most people, in, at least in the West, all want corporations to become more political and solve the problems that, corporate, uh, that the governments aren't able to solve. And, and governments, as we found in this you know, new environment are less and less capable of solving problems. They're becoming more hollow. They're losing traditional sources of power over borders, over messaging, over all the things that they used to be strong in. So people want corporations to become more political, but the problem is, is that this politics is, is very tribal. And if a corporation does become political, the early evidence is that you end up uh, finding yourself in a minefield. If you, if you take the wrong step, it's going to blow up on you. I mean, the Miller Lite example was a uh, you know classic. They thought they were doing something positive politically uh, and marginally or tangentially related to this brand. And this is a brand that generates, had generated uh, billions and billions of dollars every year, almost on autopilot. It was just like constantly throwing off money. They were experimenting and it blew up. And now they're being, they've lost, I think 20, 30, 40% of their over the revenue on the brand and it's in trouble and it's being pulled from shelves now and I think it's going to be a lost brand completely. But that is the problem with being political or aligning with a tribal network if you're a corporation. Um, sometimes though, uh, when corporations act in tandem, as we saw you know, in terms of disconnecting Trump after January 6th, if you were a corporation that you know, said, hey, wait a second, we want to continue to provide connectivity were not political. Um, what would have happened is that the other corpor corporations would have disconnected you. So that's the other problem, is that those corporations have all acceded to the network or joined the network you know, in an open source fashion uh, to take action. And if you try to oppose that, you'd be cut off. And the damage from that could be catastrophic to, to a small company. Tribalization of the network is in part being driven by this rewiring of our brains, um, our shift to pattern matching as a way to cope with it, because we can get into why, why we shifted to pattern matching, but it's not something that's going away. We just haven't figured out how to harness it and, and tame it yet. It's kind of like this wild strain of, of political and social action that uh, has yet to uh, even out. It's very interesting because what I feel is that uh, we have a corporate um, culture and practice, let's say, Praxis, I would say, in the last uh, decades. You know, if you think about how we manage brands as corporates or corporate uh, responsibility, uh, diversity and inclusion and so on. So we have a practice. And it looks like this practice is no more capable to deal with a networked, swarm-based society we live in. Because whatever you do, you can upset one side or the other and you, you risk to lose part of your market and possibly, you know, enter this, into these uh, kind of exponential problems. It looks like that uh, it's not even just a problem of large companies. For example, I recall, I think it was last year, 
when we had um, 37 signals uh, be a victim of this kind of uh, uh, reinforced uh, feedback on the fact that the founders said, you know, politics should not, should not be discussed on corporate channels like Slack, for example. We don't want to take a position politically. We, we prefer to work on the product. At that time, there was like a flame, an enormous flame, actually, Jason uh, Fried uh, is possibly coming to the podcast in the future, so I would, I would really uh, love to ask him this reflection. But basically, there is no way for traditional approaches to branding and uh, corporate management to manage this. So you cannot really manage this. Can we think of a future of organizations where brand is not going to be coherent anymore? And uh, essentially, you have a, a more like a diversity of kind of brands inside the corporation that maybe can appeal to emerging dynamic tribes. So essentially injecting into the very idea of branding much more adaptability, much more dynamism and fragmentation instead of, of the coherence we have been going through in the last few decades. What's your thought on this? The number of, of, of brands that can span all the tribal pressures is going to diminish, that's for sure. I don't think a, a single cohesive company can run multiple brands at the same time. Uh, it would have to be kind of more of a holding company structure where there's like some distance between the companies. And I don't even think that will happen organically it would, in the sense that it will, you know, it's a planned approach. It will be probably done after the fact when a holding company starts buying up assets and saying, I want to add this kind of political tribal element to my uh, portfolio. And that you're right, there's no way you can get ahead of a tribe, <laughs> right? You can't, you can't inoculate yourself because network tribes are inherently aggressive and they're always looking for weakness. And, and um, once you, at least on the internal channels, you know, let political discussions run wild, you can't rein them back easily. You're going you're gonna to have lots of dissent and it's all going to go online. It's, you know, the inside outside of the company is pretty open now. So it has to be something that's done at the very get-go. I think you can, though, create a kind of a corporate culture in terms of civility. Um, and if that's reinforced from the get-go um, and becomes like one of the major elements of being inside that company, you can mitigate a lot of this. Uh, but once you start using you know, coded language and you start using the kind of pattern matching that's done outside to attack enemies, um, there's nothing good that can come out of it because it's anti it's against from the get-go. By using it, you're, you're, you're opening yourself up for attack. And that goes left, right. It doesn't really matter. It's just like, hey, they're using that word. Boom. That's, that's tough. With, with Shruti, we were talking in, in a chat and um, you know, we were wondering about uh, uh, what could be classified as positive outcomes of this shit. Okay? You said there's no positive because it's only anti, and I get it. But the point that I want to raise, maybe on the other hand, is we have seen the outcomes of industrial society, both from a perspective of industrialization of businesses and organizations and culture as well. So education, industrialization of culture, you know, monolithic cultures and so on. And the debate is open. Many people say, you know, progress is, is going forward. Uh, others say, you know, we, we're not going to, that's, that's not really progress because we, are, we have climate change, we have uh, inequality, we have global tensions and so on. So what is the silver lining, if any, in this transition? Well, I mean, the early industrial revolution was pretty rough. 
you know, we're seeing the same thing with the kind of network revolution. And um, I would argue that on the whole, since the 1800s, we've seen a hell of a lot of progress. <laughs> I mean, it's like, things are a lot better than they were. And, and I just don't think people have a sense of history to actually understand how, how absolutely brutal and tough it was even 100 years ago from the you know, conversational level and how people would even uh, attack problems uh, all the way down to the actual living conditions of, of most of humanity. And we're seeing a, you know, a global middle class emerge everywhere. I mean, we're talking billions of people all uh, aspiring. And, and that obviously is having growing planes. It's, it's the main driver of, of climate change. You know, adding billions of people to the middle class and adding all the products and services and the air conditioning and, and the cars and, and everything else to that equation is, is, is driving this thing forward and it's making it hard to solve. We'll figure it out. I mean, I have, a th I have thinking on the climate change issue and or just generally in terms of how things are becoming more chaotic, but that's uh, focused on, on, on how global civilization has hit a global level and it is building up entropy until we get off the earth and we move into space and start developing space, not colonizing it, but using it to generate energy and, and acquire resources. The underlying dynamic here is that global civilization was a dissipative system. And in thermodynamics, that's a system that takes in energy to uh, maintain a structure that's far from thermodynamic equilibrium. And it gets more complex in time. And it takes a lot more energy to, to do. Um, that worked okay when the civilization was less or smaller than the Earth. The Earth was an external environment. But once we hit the size of the Earth, uh, the Earth is a uh, closed thermodynamic system. It exchanges energy, but it doesn't exchange matter. And that means um, that our dissipative system, our civilization, can't acquire in a limited fashion the amount of energy it needs and, and uh, expel the entropy. And that's both physical and, uh, and social entropy. I mean, the solution is to back up a little bit and say, okay, where do we want to be in 200 years? Well, there's no way to get to that place uh, without going into space, without building, you know, solar, solar arrays that are as, as wide as the earth is, that are pumping out energy at 24-7 to our server farms and our cloud that's based there, um, doing all the manufacturing based on, you know, thousands of years worth of materials and uh, minerals that we're mining off of asteroids, which is all attainable. We hit an asteroid the other day uh, uh, with an anti-asteroid missile. So we can get to asteroids um, and all the fuel that's up there. So there is, there is a potential solution to getting out of this current situation, the limitations. But until we start moving in that direction, I think the entropy is going to continue to accumulate. And uh, we're going to have more and more problems and um, build up. So that's like a big picture. I, somehow I segued into this big picture view of, of where we're at. I'm, I'm working on a way to try to uh, turn space into a gold rush. Remember how we built the internet in about five years? I mean, I was there in 93 working with uh, big, the big telephone companies. Uh, we're working on interactive television. You remember that? Uh, interactive television was kind of a send, you know, top-down internet where they were going to start using uh, network technologies to deliver channels and everything else. It was just so expensive. It was going to cost them $100 billion to build, and they couldn't figure out how much money they're going to make from it. So they kind of stalled out. And then this organic approach using you know, copper wire and modems and modem farms, and then everyone was building their own you know, 
sites using a very simple TCP IP standard started taking off and that grew into um, a feeding frenzy where everyone was building out internet infrastructure, both at the site level all the way down to the, the, the fiber. And the technology was advancing very, very quickly. And in about five, six years, we had a fully functional internet. I mean, that's trillions of dollars worth of investment in a very short period of time and problem solving that happened. If we could do that based on this promise of this gold rush of internet gold rush, um, can we do it with space? Can we do it in 10 years, what would normally take 100 years of government investment and, and slow but steady you know, investment in that? Can we do it in 10 years and change the equation here on Earth, like unlimited energy, unlimited resources, all externalized, entropies outside the Earth? And we can focus on making the Earth the place where we live better without that kind of pressure constantly being applied to it. And um, yeah, that's my world-changing aspiration. I, I'm on a project right now to make that happen, see if we can get, get that uh, kicked off. Hey, you are listening to this episode on an audio-only version. Get the best of the experience by watching these and other episodes in video on YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for Boundless Conversations or just take your browser and write blss.io slash bcpy all capital letters and you get there. On YouTube, you'll be able to subscribe to our channel and get notifications when new episodes are released. I've read uh, some of your comments on Facebook a few months ago and uh, you make it made it very clear, no? This idea that on a finite biosphere there is no other way to maintain, let's say, that the idea of progress that we have than going beyond that. So essentially, trying to start sourcing materials outside of the of the biosphere, and you know, uh, betting hard on space exploration and so on, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, the interesting points maybe to uh, underline for our listeners is that. Uh, until we get there, as you said, entropy is going to grow uncontrollably. So uh, the question will be like, from a perspective of corporates and organizations, what are the kind of structures that uh, we should be advising companies to adopt uh, to live through this process? Basically, it didn't figure out yet uh, not even what happens after we solve the, you know, the, the results uh, issues that we have. How do we get there with a functional market and a functional society? So the question for you would be maybe, you know, and I know that you have been introducing a lot of uh, concepts like, you know, for example, that of uh, being connected on your own terms, strategic disconnection. So how can we um, think of a few patterns that uh, organizations can embrace uh, to be able, I don't want to say to thrive, but basically to adapt and evolve uh, uh, as entropy grows uh, in the in the possibly in the next decade or so, yeah, um, a lot of the advice applies to individuals as well as corporations. It, uh, I like to stay politically neutral. My kids stay politically neutral. It helps them get a lot of less stress on, on their brains and and in conversations if you could do that. And then, um, I mean, that, I think the same applies to corporations, and that gets you out of the whole tribal insanity and then um in terms of resilience and i did a whole thing on resilience uh, uh, you know if things break down and and things will break down i mean like in the u.s 
terms of electricity, we flatlined our production, and that's happening around the world. We haven't produced any more than we have five years ago. It hasn't really caused a problem because all the low-hanging fruit of efficiency has been kind of wrung out of the system, and now we're down to the bedrock, and we're about to add electric cars. <laughs> and everyone's pushing back and saying, we're not going to generate more electricity, but we're adding electric cars to the equation, and it's going to cause brownouts. And already blackouts in the U.S. Have, over the last five years have doubled in number, and it's going to keep on going. We're going to see brownouts as a, as a regular occurrence because there's no one's at, finding a way to add new energy to the system, even though it's more demanding of it. So how do you deal with a system that is being constrained and has more problems meeting the needs of, 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 of people and it starts to break down and, and, and uh, um, brown out? both electricity and all the other things that we get from the system. You don't want to take a kind of an isolation approach and do everything yourself. That's very expensive and time consuming. It's like growing all your own food. It's, it would take all your time to grow your own food. It's just uh, not worth it. Uh, what you can do is, is build up uh, the capacity and the skill sets necessary to replace what you're missing for short periods of time. Um, and so if things become too expensive for a short period of time or, to, or disconnected, uh, you should be able to keep yourself going. So like in a data center, it's like you have, you have the capacity to keep your data center up and going for longer than, than the, the, the short blackout, um, in just a couple of minutes. You have to have the battery capacity or the generator capacity to go longer for weeks if necessary. I mean, I just had a blackout that was three, what, two days. And I have a whole house generator and I kept it up. And I've built a couple of data centers and so this is the kind of the same kind of thing. Uh, you'll have to increase the timeline on how long you expect to be disconnected or things to be, to be broken. You have to increase your you know, security inside your corporation, both from that, you know, cyber, of course, and the, um, and the physical. So, I mean, that from a resilience perspective is just, you know, connect on your own terms, um, be able to provide for yourself for short periods of time, take a multimodal approach, don't rely on one thing, try to increase the number of different ways that you connect to the system to allow you some you know diversity at, at the home level it's like don't have one way to heat your house <laughs> have a couple you know i have a pellet stove i have a gas furnace and um and other things that different fireplaces that do different things and then if one is expensive or you know i don't get you know delivery on it then i can switch i'm not like freezing the house and Everything goes down. And the same thing happens to corporations. All right, so that's kind of the resilience perspective to handling a, you know, a high entropy environment. And we're all going to experience that. It's just inevitable. Thermodynamics is kind of like the, if God had a law, that's it. Thermodynamics. That's the law of the universe. There's no breaking it. So I, I just want to maybe draw some initial conclusions be, before we switch uh, to maybe other topics. But, um, you know, I think... Uh, from from the initial conversation we had, uh, we spoke about trying to be politically neutral. Uh, we spoke about uh, uh, embracing uh, um, uh, more diversity, so unbundling a little bit uh, the corporation. You said something interesting. You said uh, sometimes uh, uh, multiple brands, for example, can only come as a consequence of uh, mergers and acquisitions. I would add that we are also experimenting with boundaryless some approaches to unbundling and rebundling the corporation. So 
thinking in terms of uh, multiplying your value proposition, your brand proposition, and also your political propositions may, may be a good uh, 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 option to multiply and be more resilient towards uh, this kind of uh, dynamics. But on a more structural basis, I think you said something, again, interesting about you know, uh, trying to secure uh, your capability to um, uh, resist to shocks. Uh, you spoke about uh, what I perceived as uh, multiplying your sourcing capabilities. So because essentially you may have some interruptions in your supply chain. So uh, the idea of uh, uh, having nodes that are connected to more sources of, of suppliers, for example, and, and or even diverse routes to customers may be a good idea you know, in terms of optionality. For organization. So I think that was uh, uh, also good uh, uh, to uh, recap for our listeners. You've taken, let's say, a stance of some amount of political neutrality. But when it comes to organizations and how, let's say, individuals play a group and on the parallel digital tribes are, let's say, building, then where do individuals tend to, let's say, de-individualize themselves in the sense that they sort of operate in group dynamics and participate in some sort of, you know, opposing belief systems probably to adhere to some amount of group dynamics? And where does all of this come into play when it comes to organizations aligning on a certain goals, right? So that's something that I wanted you to touch upon a bit more. The kind of reorganization of social structure, um, very similar to what happened with the printing press. And in the printing press, that kind of launched the Reformation and Protestantism and because it allowed the printed Bible and allowed people to spin off into all these different um, splinter religions. And, the, you know, to a certain extent, the, the network tribalism we see now, it's kind of a secular religious kind of overtone to it. It's very evangelical. It's very uh, aggressive in many ways. So if you're a corporation and you want to allow people to be individuals, you, you, uh, you can try to embrace it to a certain extent and, and then focus. That's where I say that you can't have a, a brand that brands for each different external tribal group inside the same corporation because it has to be aligned throughout the entire thing. This, you know, it's a cultural outgrowth. The brand has got to reflect the internal culture. So you can have corporations side by side, but you can't have them all in the same house. The problem with uh, allowing people to really express that kind of politicized tribal sentiment is that it's kind of like in, in the U.S. it's like discussing politics and religion at Thanksgiving, right? I mean, if you're your family and you, you enjoy everybody, if you start getting down that rabbit hole, it's like it, it's going to blow up. It's going it, the, the whole table is going to go. And uh, when you combine politics and religion and the, the way this kind of network is, is uh, dynamic has done previously in Europe, it blew up your I mean, it divided it, it turned into a complete mess. I mean, 30 years war, it's like, bam, very, very bloody and very, very awful. Um, we're having kind of a smaller version of that right now. But we'll see, uh, you know, as time progresses, hopefully it stays this small, that doesn't get worse. But uh, yeah, discussing it at the dinner table is, is tough. And that's kind of like, you know, company. You want to have cultural conversations. And so you got to keep it muted to the extent possible. Not combative supportive, positive. John, you know, you mentioned often that uh, as a um, consequence of uh, these dynamics, uh, sometimes we, are, we see uh, states align with corporates, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if uh, uh, this is a response can ensure some kind of stability 
let's say in the situation we live so how do you how do you think of uh, of this as a dynamic why is this emerging this kind of neo i don't want to say neo fascist but you know fascism was uh, uh, were known for the alignment of the corporate uh, um, let's say interest with the state so why we are seeing that and uh, as people what can we expect how can we kind of uh, uh, counteract these dynamics and keep our markets uh, free let's say yeah um i've looked into this you know the, the three great systems of the 20th century battled it out you know had communism and fascism and, and, and democracy slash capitalism and um most people when they talk about fascism they they think you know jack boots and and racism and things like that but that's not the system uh, the system was how do you organize bureaucracies corporate bureaucracies uh government bureaucracies to to manage the society and the and and, and the economy and uh those three systems had three different ways of doing that uh, with communism you had an ideology but the single bureaucracy that managed everything society and economy but the burden of actually doing that was too great. You know, you had too few decision makers and you couldn't plan the future effectively because think you miss things like computers and things like that. Having just one shoe because it was perfect is not the way to go about it. Um, and then you had capitalism slash democracy, which tended to be messy and, and, and really wasn't good at waging war, which is, you know, how the contest between these systems was, was played out. It was tended to be messy because there was all these competing interests and corporations were given kind of a, a, a playing field where they could go out and compete. And, and, you know, as long as they didn't go outside the boundaries of that playing field, everything was fine. Um, and the government had a limited bureaucracy that managed certain things that fell through the cracks of that, that, that capitalist system. But the fascism said, OK, we can't manage everything centrally like communism. We don't want to. But and uh, we want to have corporations do that for us and we'll have corporations manage much more of the of the social system than than uh, democracy and capitalism does but we also see them as competing interests so how do we get everyone in this system working on the on the on the same solution and and they worked out a, a means of propaganda and and goal setting uh Germany called it Gleichschaltung. Those were the first three laws that they passed in Germany when Hitler took over. Is like how, the Gleichschaltung laws is like on the same page, in the same, with the same focus. Is how do you get all of these uh, different bureaucracies solving the same problem? And that system was effective, but the means by which they achieved that unification was by creating enemies, common enemies, and. Um, what happens when you start creating a common enemy, you know, it's like threatening, it's horrible, it's about to get us, it, both internal and external, is that the severity and the, the immediacy of the danger of that enemy goes up and up and up, but the solutions needed to take care of that get more and more drastic. Uh, so ultimately you end up killing, you know, millions of people inside your country and you're at war with everyone else because all the countries outside of you are, are, are enemies, or most of them. And, uh, so it was a self-defeating system. Fast forward to where we're at now with networks. Uh, we have, you know, democratic capitalism is pretty much in charge of the system, but it's been moving more and more and more towards a fascist model. That's the kind of system that uh, 
many people are advocating for in terms of how we should, in the rest of the West, eliminate the kind of chaos that we're seeing sociopolitically, is that we align everybody towards a common goal, corporations and governments, and uh, we all work together to do that. But unfortunately, the dynamic of tribalism that we're using, like I said earlier, is an anti. It has the same, it's against things, it has enemies, it has patterns of behavior that they're, they're opposed uh, to. Um, that dynamic has the same flaw the original fascism did, is that you end up creating new enemies, new people to target, new groups, new organizations, new countries. We saw a little bit of what that meant most recently when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. There was a network that was built up, a tribal network to oppose Trump, and uh, been, got very effective at doing that, but it was you know waging a moral war against him, and Putin was lumped in with that. And uh, for many people, he was the architect of Trump's election. I don't, you know, for, as a, somebody who looks at this professionally and been around the internet forever, I didn't think the Russian contribution was much at all, but uh, a lot of people would say otherwise. Um, so when Putin invaded Ukraine, all of that network immediately said, okay, he is the new Hitler. He's everything that we said he was. That hatred reframed the whole invasion and war into something that was a clash of systems. We saw immediate move to turn it into the new Cold War, um, discarding all the kind of traditional Cold War approaches that we had to dealing with another nuclear power, which are kind of a, a very measured approach to kind of containing them, controlling it, limiting the damage, trying to come up with a stable solution that, that would minimize casualties in Ukraine and, 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 and uh, um, prevent you know, a larger war. Uh, we went whole, whole hog into it. You know, uh, we, thousands of companies joined the network opposing Russia, disconnecting Russia, disconnecting Russians, kicking them out of discussion groups, like shunning them as a whole and um, reframing it into this like replay of World War II and here's Hitler coming to take all of Europe. And um, I mean, not to offend people who think it in that perspective, but uh, it was extreme. And, you know, from my perspective as somebody who studied my first paper and I ever wrote was about nuclear war and the difficulties associated with deterrence. I mean, it is the most complex psychological problem anyone could ever attempt. Um, is that we went right up and during those initial phases to the edge of a potential nuclear release and, you know, threats aside, you have to actually look through the noise of threats and, and, and dismissals of those threats and say, what would actually trigger a nuclear release? And we got close to that. And the network that was, I called it the swarm that was pushing for amplifying the war and against Russia, um, didn't care about nuclear release. They poo pooed it. They like said it was, Oh, it was fine. You know, then no, Nuclear weapons will never be used, and uh, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I, and the and the reason why is I figured out that the the swarm, the network, didn't have a sense of mortality. It never it didn't think it would die. It doesn't solve problems the way we do. Um, it goes for maximal gains. It wanted complete victory. Want complete surrender of Russia. It won't stop until that happens. Abdication, dearming. Uh, denuclearization, 
I mean, that's the goal of that network. And um, it completely disregards any kind of threats or, or mitigating factors. Has no it, There's no nuance involved. There's no kind of stable middle ground outcome. I mean, the kind of thinking that got us through the Cold War without blowing up the world. I mean, the John Kennan, uh, you know, containment thinking. That kind of like, let's not go too far here. Let's try to work this out. Nobody's really going to be happy, but we don't blow up the world kind of thinking. Um, that let us survive the end of the 20th century without uh, uh, World War Three and Four. Uh, yeah, the swarm doesn't like that. It doesn't like that nuance. It doesn't like the compromise. Incidentally, I mean, based on everything I've seen and I back channels on, on, on Musk, that was the reason he bought Twitter. You know, he, he saw that. He was an initial participant in it, and then he saw it picking up momentum on Twitter, and then he said, oh, my God, this is dangerous. I have to, I have to buy this. And he did, and then he muted that conversation. He de-amplified it. So Ukraine as a topic started dropping down and everything started to become less escalatory, kind of saved us from ourselves. And, you know, for all the foibles and, and the errors and things that he's done as, as managing Twitter, and it's too bad it's not as good as it used to be because so many people left. I mean, not the how, not mechanics of how it works. It's just that people were protesting his, his ascension, uh, his purchase. If he actually saved us from a nuclear catastrophe, I think that's actually a good thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this uh, last segment, I think, is um, really a testament to how things have changed in the last few decades, really. You know, I cannot imagine having this conversation uh, 10 or 20 years ago. We were all focused on innovations and the, the thesis was much more globalized let's say even china had a very similar you know development thesis as we do uh we on the west i would say india as well you know shruti is here she's an indian uh so you know we can do we can make parallels with situations coming up in general in this regionalization of the discussion we are seeing you know a lot of a lot more confrontation multiple award and so on and um you know for example you know, to, to, as a testament, again, of how much overlapped and complicated things are, we at Boundless, we collaborate with the Chinese company very much since lots of years. So I think, uh, um, you know, it's again, it's a manifestation of how much overlap things are. Even if I think of, uh, for example, what's happening in Europe, I think the last five uh, years, uh, and uh, most likely also the, the, the years coming up, have been um, very much, um, I would say, influenced by decisions in terms of budget allocations from a, uh, from a EU perspective. So now we have a market that is at many levels um, entirely, uh, you know, transformed and impacted by public policy, you know, like, you know, allocation of capital on certain segments, for example, of the market. So EVs or, uh, you know, uh, sustainability, the, the Green New Deal, the, and so on. So I think, you know, we, it's clear that the political agenda and the technology agenda and the corporate agendas are overlapping and we have to understand how to manage this complexity. So maybe as a last question before we move into the last bits, uh, I would like to ask you uh, to make an exercise of uh, projecting a little bit of these dynamics in the next, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say five years, but in the next cycle, let's say. How is this cycle going to produce a sublimation and then maybe 
what comes next you know i don't know what's your feeling on this also pondering and and uh, considering new technological elements that are emerging like ai or i know last time we spoke about virtual reality as well so what is your perception in terms of how this mess is going to evolve over the short midterm uh, uh, in the next two to three to five years one of the overarching frameworks i'm using is a perma crisis so we'll have a continual reemergence of a, of a crisis that's on a global scale typically mishandled um, by governments and corporations and the response has been to add a little authoritarianism to the system it's like 9-11 militarizes the police in the united states and starts this whole global manhunt surveillance system or january 6th most recently you know started to control the information flows even more aggressively the censorship complex these authoritarian measures don't go away so they'll continue to accumulate and 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 the dissent will become more and more strident and, and chaotic um, complaining about the way that, that these crises have been handled so if we're getting more authoritarian um, and here comes AI and a augmented reality and uh, my worry is they're going to be misapplied I mean you know I testified in front of the Senate you know focusing on trying to get some digital rights and data ownership rights uh, where we own our data and our data is now being used to build these AIs and we're not getting any kind of you know ownership stake in what will become the most valuable technologies ever built right and we're talking technologies that in 10 years probably worth tens of trillions of dollars I mean major segment of the global economy and our data was used to train them and we're not participating in it or we're like serfs we're just being you know, strip mine for data and, 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 and labor. Um, but so that's not, you know, those reforms that would make this, the impact of these new technologies better aren't, aren't being implemented. Uh, what we're seeing is kind of a concentration of power and then you add AI to the mix and you add concentration wealth and concentrated power makes it even more so. Um, there's some dynamics on the warfare front is that as you move into drones and AI drones and, and the like, uh, you don't need the large militaries anymore to have a large military force um, you know it turns more into kind of a feudal system uh, one of the reasons why we have democracy and, and constitutional governance and and uh, people care about you know what everyone thinks is that uh, you needed a lot of people for these big armies to fight wars uh, and that, you know, like during the cold war i mean all of the civil rights and everything else at least was justified by a lot of the, the government types because it kept our ability to make war at a global level possible um, allowed us to continue to have a multi-million man army. Um, and so uh, AI kind of mutes that. AI also plays a big role in the future of censorship and totalitarian kind of systems um, because it can, we're already seeing this and, and, and the surprise of how good it's getting and it's how great it is coming from the civilian sector. It can listen to the conversations of billions of people simultaneously, you know, on or offline, make sense of those conversations, kind of redirect them or punish the people involved or, you know, reward the people involved. Um, and it could do it, you know, all at in real time simultaneously. So, you think about that. That's like that's not a, much of a stretch from what we're having. You know, listen to it. You can read it. Um, 
it can see what you're doing and parse and make sense of the picture or make sense of the video, you know, and, and, and project as what you're doing in that video. People don't think that's going to be abused or they're wrong. And if we're headed more and more towards a totalitarian or, or authoritarian system, uh, kind of adopting the model of trying to get rid of that chaos online because, oh, people are dissenting and it's, it's so messy. Uh, it's hard to discuss stuff. A lot of rude people online. So let's adopt these authoritarian measures and use AI to do that. Uh, that's, I think, a wrong approach. And then you add AR into it. Uh, I think the way AR is going to play out is that there's not a metaverse like a virtual space or you know world that we all go to visit, kind of out of snow crash that doesn't work. Um, those are you know kind of unique environments that are mostly fantasy for gaming, right? If you want to go to a specific world, you go to there, like Skyrim or something like that, one of the you know popular games. Where AR, augmented reality, uh, is going to be more important than VR, it's going, to, it's going to add a digital layer to everything that's around us. Okay, now that's going to be the metal layer that'll allow you to redecorate your house, you know, add a soundtrack to your life. Uh, you could change what you're wearing, change what other people perceive you to be wearing. Uh, you know, you can beautify yourself to forget the makeup. It's like you already see hints of this on, 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 everything, on, on all the social media now. They put you in a mansion, right? Or you can have Martha Stewart redo, you know, uh, every Christmas that you can share with other people visiting. Uh, you can look out your windows and see, you know, um, daylight every day, you know, late into the night because it can turn day into night and night to day to get rid of rain while you're driving. Um, all that stuff is coming, but the driver on that is going to be, um, this is a replacement, this virtual replacement, this virtual a sense of prosperity and, 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 and goodness, uh, being able to talk to characters that are AI driven, that are in your life uh, as a replacement for human beings, which might be good in certain circumstances, but you know, people are going to you know, utilize these at, on a mass scale. These are going to be seen as a replacement for the real world delivery of those items and prosperity. And um, you know, they'll use climate change as a, as a rationale for doing that saying, okay, we got to cut down on giving you the good stuff, the real stuff, the tangible stuff, the products and the services and the, and the interaction and the communities that really work, but we'll give you the virtual equivalent. So no matter what your lot in life, as long as you're getting fed a certain amount of calories and, and like, everything else will be look better. It'll look pristine and amazing. And a virtual economy can get very, very big and it can start creating its own weather. And, uh, you know, and, and it also have lots and lots of people that just opt to live in it constantly, never want to leave. Uh, it, the mental problems and the, and, the, and the dysfunction that's going to be derived from that is going to be awful. The fact that uh, uh, we don't, and I've also been pushing for open access platforms to deliver this. So uh, there aren't any gating or gatekeepers like we have with the app stores on the major uh, smartphone platforms who could you know, charge a 30% tax on all of, all of that economy. I mean, could you imagine a, a, a virtual economy worth $20 trillion or $30 trillion a year and uh, Google or, or uh, Facebook or OpenAI charges a 30% tax on it? And governments don't, can't, couldn't even hope to make that kind of money. Um, no, can't, we don't want that. Also, they would control who can get on and what you can do. And, and we don't want, what if, as you move to like AR slash AI tutors. Like you can already see this in the educational space. When you, the open AI implementation right now can actually pass 
a uh, freshman level Harvard course set with a 3.5 or 3.6 GPA average. So it can teach people uh, at a college level. Uh, it can teach people at a variety of different levels. AI tutors that stay with people for their entire lives is very possible. And to the extent that that will actually include um, elements outside of just pure academic knowledge, like social knowledge, uh, we don't want that controlled by one person or one group. We want people to be able to have some level of, of choice in, in what they choose to have their kids learn, whether it's religious or social belief or whatever it is, uh, you know, ethnic customs, whatever, whatever you want to incorporate, it should be the parent's choice. Um, and that uh, unless you have kind of an open platform, you'll have that dictated. And um, the relationship between the AI as a developed personality and your kids are going to be tighter than uh, a lot of people imagine. Once this hits in five years, you know, we're already seeing the, the thing in the next year or so, but when you start to see the first major platform come out and it starts zooming with these AI AR characters and, and redos, it's going to take off as fast as the smartphone did, and, and, which came out in 2007. And by 2020, 5 billion people had it, right? I see this as like, it's going to go from zero to 5 billion people overnight, probably even less time, maybe 10 years. And we won't know what hit us. But if it's in the control of a few major corporations, it's going to be horrific. So open platforms, open access, digital rights, digital data ownership, um, simple rules that if we do it now, downstream is going to be much, much better. And it's going to be a bounded system. But if we don't, damn, we're, we're headed for a world of hurt. And it looks like a very challenging task. You know, it doesn't look like uh, we're going to make it very easily. You know, this idea of open metaverse, for example, that's, uh, uh, or open LLM systems. You know, it doesn't look like we are on this good track, but... Well, you can do it at a corporate level, right? If you're an organization, in the next five years, organizations and corporations, everyone's going to start collecting data from their employees. <laughs> okay, to train, and, and there are going to be companies offering training on that data to, to create new employees. Right? So you have to figure out how you're going to do that in, in, in equitable. I mean, not, not equitable in the same similar outcomes. That's kind of a bad use of the term. Equitable meaning that they get uh, a piece of the action in the upside opportunity. Okay, if they give you data and they help train these AIs, they should participate in the success of that venture and, and not necessarily through the stock or whatever, but it could be a royalty. I'm suggesting royalties, uh, but it could be, you know, stock ownership, but a meaningful stake, not like a pittance, like here's a here's a hundred shares or something like that. I mean, it's something that, you know, a pool, a meaningful pool that the, that the employees contributing to that are participating in. And that's above and beyond salary and bonuses and everything else because they're, to a certain extent, competing for their job and, and with those AIs once they train them. But, uh, you know, that competition shouldn't be zero sum. And if enough companies start adopting that practice, that can mitigate a lot of the downside of the year. I mean, the companies that don't will stand out and be the companies that people avoid. What you were speaking about is really interesting. I remembered the um, book which I read three years back that really sort of influenced me, right? Like I remember reading Age of Surveillance Capitalism and a lot of it still holds true today. And, you know, what you spoke about 
highly resonated with that especially on the points of let's say concentrated wealth and power and so on the listeners i'm sure have learned a lot from you today but we wanted to ask you if you have maybe any additional suggestions for books or podcasts or anything that basically inspires you we call these breadcrumbs on our podcast so anything that inspires you that our listeners can learn from as well i suggest reading some books by uh Marshall McLuhan they're, they're really kind of strange to read but they're worth reading um anything about John Boyd uh you know mostly he just had some papers look up John Boyd type pad T Y P E P A D I have a site that has a collection of his papers some old videos which are really crappy videos but reading those papers and reading his perspective on on decision making is will help uh he never wrote a book which was kind of his big failure but uh um and do that now if you want a sense of where ar and ai is going I mean, at least ar uh, i suggest that if you game you know use skyrim and the modded version of skyrim and you can see that there's you know you use mod manager to load the mods off a site called nexus and and there are hundreds of mods a week thousands um and they can they'll let you modify every bit of behavior and scenery in the in the game and that will give you a sense of how much control of your environment you will have your sensory environment in the future and how like little changes to the color template that you're using will have vast changes in your your mood um from soundtracks to the ai character ai driven characters that you're interacting with there's even some mods that allow voice interaction with the characters and you can give them a backstory <laughs> loaded into the ai that would allow them to respond like that character which is really kind of cool and strange but it's all cutting edge because it, you know this open environment that Bethesda made um that'll come to you know Starfield at some point but um, you know it's kind of unplayable right now but that'd be a hands-on thing and then you know a lot of my stuff on 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 the global global gorillas report you know the easiest way to get it is to go on Substack for that um there's more complex stuff that you can get off of Patreon um but the easiest way to access that uh is through Substack and I cover a lot of topics usually 2 3 4 5 years ahead of time so when it actually happens in practice I'm kind of bored with it so I don't even talk about it and everyone starts talking about it like oh, blah, 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 blah. you know it's like but it, I've already written a report about that and talked about it 4 years ago I you know it's not interesting to me now um so I let them all just go without participating in it but if you want to get a little ahead yeah my approach is very similar to what I did at Forrester uh when I was an analyst there. Uh, they had I built frameworks in a you know paragraph bullet 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 kind of logical structure for understanding you know a rapidly changing environment something I'm focusing on. And um if you're a decision maker making a decision in that environment it'll unfreeze you. You know because with too much change you can't you don't know what to invest in and what to do and how to respond and it can be debilitating and the framework can at least give you a something to hang your hat on and 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 start to kind of take the news and put it into the right cubby holes you may or may not stick with the framework you but it allows you to modify it or expand on it or refute portions of it but it unfreezes you and allows you to operate again um and i find that people tend to think that that's beneficial to their future prosperity a lot of people have made a lot of money reading my stuff and knowing what they how to think about things in a new environment so um 
And it's not even explicit financial advice. It's just how to approach the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I just was, was saying that uh, three years ago, three and a half ago, we spoke about, uh, for example, I recall we spoke about AR and VR and, and lots of the things you said, I've watched it uh, that unfold in the Vision Pro advertising, for example, right? That was a, a very interesting, uh, you know, and provocative reflection that I had before this, this conversation. So, John, I mean, it was it was great. I hope you enjoyed our, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, provocative at some point uh, and, uh, you know, always uh, far-ranging questions. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. Thank you for having me. And nice meeting you, uh, Shruti. Thank you so much as well, uh, Shruti, for your always uh, interesting points. Thank you. Thanks for having me as usual, Simone. And thank you, John. It was great listening to you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you both. And to our listeners, uh, don't, rem- don't forget, uh, go to bandres.io slash slash podcast. You will find John's episode uh, with all the uh, transcript and all the links, the show notes. And until we speak again, uh, don't forget, uh, remember to think boundaryless.